This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Tara Moss, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much. I'm a little bit excited today. Well, so am I. So that's that's good. That's yeah, helpful. I've been looking forward to it. Um, Tara, I have followed your career quite closely and I have seen, I think I was even at your very early events, like maybe the first book or I can't remember. That was 20 years ago, almost to the day. Can you mm. believe it? So mm. so you might have been at the launch of Fetish at the uh, Justice and Police Museum. Do you think that's, that's possible? I think that is very possible. Oh, my possible. goodness. Because I was a bookseller at the time. Yeah, that might have been the first time mm. we came across each mm. other. Yeah, and I really, I've just followed your career very closely. So um, I think I'm just fangirling you a little bit, but that's fine. <laughs> um, Tara Moss is a best-selling author and novelist. Uh, she's a documentary host, a speaker and a human rights advocate. She has written 12 best-selling books, which have been published in 13 languages across 19 countries. I mean, Wow. I can't believe it's been 20 years and now 12 books. I don't mm. know where the time goes. It's, mm. um, where does it go? Her most recent book is the historical crime novel Dead Man Switch. Her research for the novel has included touring the FBI Academy at Quantico, spending time in morgues, <laughs> prisons and courtrooms and taking polygraph tests. Well... <laughs> I want to hear all about that. <laughs> she has even had private investigator credentials. So did you go and do a course or something? I did. I'm actually a qualified uh, private investigator. So if ever the, the whole book thing falls away, then, you know, you, know, you can look me up in the yeah, phone Yeah, because you're so indiscreet. No one will ever know you're following <laughs> no, them. No, like I'm great at being incognito. <laughs> yeah. However, Tara has also written nonfiction, including her critically acclaimed The Fictional Woman, which became a national number one uh, nonfiction bestseller and congratulations. Congratulations on that Thank too. you. It really was a very formative book. Um, when not writing, Tara is speaking out online uh, about online abuse through her documentary series, Cyber Hate with Tara Moss. She is an advocate for human rights and the rights for women and children and has been UNICEF, Australia's National Ambassador for Child Survival since 2013. In 2015, she won the Edna Ryan Award and her contribution to the feminist debate and in 2017 was chosen as one of the global top 50 diversity figures in public life, an award given to those who use their sta uh, station to make a positive impact. I mean, that to me is, is just, it says a lot about a person because, you know, you could just write books, couldn't you? I could just write books. I mean, I... Well, I guess that's theoretically, but I'm me. So mm. no, I couldn't just do that, I suppose. Mm. A lot of people do that. Yeah. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense. It depends yeah. on what's going on in your world. Yeah. But for me, it's quite natural uh, to speak out on issues. And I think that's been increasingly the case as I've matured, become older, um, 
perhaps wiser, perhaps not. We can mm. <laughs> we can decide what the judge says about that. But um, for me, it's become a natural part of my world to uh, see opportunities to advocate on issues and to use my platform to do so. And I wouldn't feel comfortable with myself or right in the world if I didn't do that when the opportunities presented themselves. Mm. Okay, tell me, I want to kind of get to the, because I don't know your life story, even mm. though I think I've been stalking you. Um, <laughs> tell me, uh, so where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Victoria, BC, which is in the west coast of Canada on yes. Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently living again in that area, so I'm living in Vancouver right now. But uh, from 1996 onwards, I lived in Australia for, um, gosh, over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um and it's been longer than that, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time. So I'm an Australian uh, Canadian uh, or a Kanazi, as they sometimes call it. Oh, I haven't heard that term. Um, tell me about uh, growing up and when do you think the passion for writing came to you? Because you must have had a passion for reading, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Um, I was very lucky to be raised in a household where um, there were books everywhere and there was reading time every night, which is something I recommend for all families if you can do it uh, mm. in any form. You know, mm. having books around is a wonderful way to um enjoy your life more, but also it's very formative for kids to have these tales, to, to um, open up their creativity and their minds. And I was fortunate to be one of those kids. And from about, I want to say about age 10, I was already writing little novelettes. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was cute, except not because the earliest manifestations were uh, little horror novels. Oh, wow. Um, as far as from cute as you can really get. Uh, and I was inspired by Stephen King of all people. Wow. So Early? Uh, early. Like yeah. age 10 when I really probably shouldn't have been getting access to those novels. I'd like sneak them out of the library uh, and read them by torchlight after, you know, lights mm. out. Mm. And for me it was this exciting sort of taboo and this these stories I was being I want to um, stop here. On. I want to mm-hmm. stop here because I think that's a really interesting point because we try and protect children from yes. horror and from crime. Mm. And, you know, even now people are saying that the grim fairy tales, for instance, yes. aren't appropriate for children. My view has always been that children take in what they can take in and process it in a way that is yes. meaningful to them. I agree with you. I also think, I think you're right about them taking in what they relate to. Yeah. Um, but also I think shielding children entirely from the unpleasantries of the world doesn't really set them up for life. I mean, neither necessarily is reading Cujo or, you yeah. know, Christine, uh, which is one of my favourite books as a kid, but still I was able to, from a safe place, and my childhood was safe, I was lucky in that respect, from a safe position I was able to kind of scare myself reading things and explore those um, taboos and kind of the things that go bump in the night and those spooky things. Now, um, I grew up with Halloween being a big deal. It's not such a big deal here in Australia, but every year in Canada, you know, I would uh, dress up and there was a theme of spookiness and things that, that scared you. And I felt that that was very healthy. It was like a time to explore things that make you feel scared. Mm. And it's like it opened it up to be okay being scared and to uh, maybe even... Um, you know, to think think about that again from like a, a safe position. Mm. Uh, so as I've become older and particularly doing um, yeah. the humanitarian work that I do, obviously I realize it's a real privilege to be in a position where 
you feel safe in there for you can go out of your way to go to a haunted house or like a, you know, a theme park uh, to get spooked, right? Mm. Like what a great privilege. But it's still part of that formative time for a lot of kids and there's a reason why they do that. I think it's part of growing up, part of finding your own boundaries and comfort zone is to actually explore things that make you scared. Mm. Do you still like reading Stephen King or I does don't it scare really, you more? No, it doesn't scare me more, but I guess my, uh, and I'll always love Stephen King, mm. uh, and I love his on-writing book as well as the, the fiction. Um, for me, my focus at the moment is slightly different writing, but I will always love his work. Mm. And through the years, I suppose the interest in horror turned into an interest in crime, which is a slightly, for the most part, more realistic version of of horror mm. um, and connects a little bit more with what goes on in the world around us. But again, with that, you know, comfortable veneer of fiction, mm. which is essentially what I've tried to do with this new series that I'm mm. touching on issues that are genuinely, you know, troubling and disturbing, but I'm doing it with a, a veneer of fiction and through a great romp so that as a reader, you can enjoy it and you can kind of explore these issues without feeling you know, like you're getting a history lesson or, a, you know, or you, that you want to just go and cry somewhere in a corner. <laughs> Why do we love crime so much? I love As, it. I love it too. I, um, I get asked that question a lot. I think it relates to, um, again, what I was speaking to earlier, that idea of intentionally going to uncomfortable places as a way, like almost as practice, mm. a way of um, exercising our comfort and knowledge of like the things that aren't nice in the world because life mm. isn't always uh, mm. roses. Um, reading a book might not be like a direct um, learning. One would hope not. One, mm. one would hope nothing will happen to you that it happens to the characters in this book. But it is also reflecting the real world and mm. things that do happen. So I think doing that from the armchair, you know, in a comfortable setting with a, a fiction novel is a, a healthy way to explore real human issues and it's something that's always attracted the me to the genre both as a reader but specifically as a writer because it gives me the opportunity to explore social issues to explore exploitation and human rights abuses but in a in a way that's not direct and non-fiction do you know um, this is a, a slight sidetrack but i think it's also relevant i'm listening to a podcast on fred and rosemary west mm -hmm. um just a four-part series written by this journalist who reported the story and it's intriguing and i don't know why i'm listening to it because you know true crime isn't my thing but somehow it came up but what is really sat with me and I think you touch on these themes, not just with your fiction, but with your nonfiction, is that man was violent from forever. Mm. So if you go back to Fred West, and he was murdering women and children for a very long time before he was even discovered at, yes. at, in, in London. But the characters that have really sat with me, and particularly today walking to work, is that no one cared about these women and children. Yep. The, one of the strong through lines in Dead Man's Switch, and certainly with my nonfiction mm. as well, is the way we have a tendency to rank humans rather than actually thinking of everyone as of equal value, different mm. but of equal value. We instead have a terrible history as human beings of ranking different groups of people. Value. Ranking value and, and down to the point where some people are essentially worthless. Mm. World War II would not have played out the way that it did. The Holocaust would not have happened if not for that particular mindset 
that there is a, a ranking of human beings and the legitimizing of that thinking, right? Mm. And I think that that plays into crimes that we see. It certainly plays into violence against women and kids, um, but it plays into probably a lot of different forms of violence. And certainly in the context of war and in the context of the Holocaust and World War II, there are a lot of lessons there that I think are relevant still, you know, 75 years later. We still need to be thinking about um, the ranking of humans, thinking about bigotry, thinking about racism, thinking about, um, yes, anti-Semitism and the rise of fascism mm. uh, and what that means and how it should be handled, how mm. hate speech should be handled, how propaganda mm. that singles out groups of people as being worth less than others you know there's lessons still that apply to that oh look do you know i and i was thinking that just listening to that this morning you know you know all these mainly female girls kids mm. gone missing and you know a woman an adult woman wasn't found for another 26 years mm. and i thought here we are in 2019 yep. and not a lot's changed there are s disturbing similarities mm. um with cases today and you know, I think one of the things you're alluding to there as well is that there was a level of acceptance in the way these people were treated. Mm -hmm. And that was very much the case in World War II and in this post-war context within the book that I've most recently published. But also that plays into, again, um, violence in the household. It's accepted. You know, it's like, oh, that's just the nature of things. And, you know, it's kind of somehow okay until it spills outside the door. Yeah. And that same uh, serial perpetrator murders a stranger on the street suddenly we're all like shocked and it is shocking mm. but no one listened to you know the uh, the loved ones of that person for the last 20 years mm. when they were building up to this behavior so yeah there's something about the ranking of humans and a level of acceptance for certain types of violence is particularly when it's against certain types of people mm. i've never uh, heard that word ranking applied to humans and i like it I, mm. it's interesting isn't it it's it's sad, but it's yeah. there, isn't it? It's there and it's a um, it's a through line in Dead Man's Switch in a very direct way mm. that, that each of the characters who are negatively impacted in this book, and I won't you know say too much mm. about the individual fates of each of the characters, but the, their ranking in society is relevant to what happens to them in the book. Mm. And that's true of that period and unfortunately true today. Mm -hmm. well. It is true. Um, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And I don't want to go this um, in too much details, but I do want mm -hmm. to touch on it because you do talk about these issues openly. Me too. Mm -hmm. 
Where have we got to? Well, we've come a long way, I can tell you. Like, for me, when The Fictional Woman was published in 2014, it was a few years before the Me Too uh, movement went viral. You were ahead of your time. A little bit, in a a sense behind it, but also ahead of it. Like, Mm -hmm. there have been women and people speaking out for a very long time, but... um, it did. People did sort of grab onto that. The media did grab onto it, and it was uh, uncomfortable in a way to come out as a survivor of sexual violence. These days, um, there has been a little bit of a shift in that. There's a momentum that has come from so many people showing solidarity with one another and speaking out at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a wave. You know, that's why they describe feminism often as as being in waves because it's it takes so many people. So. Me Too is something that I think is very important. I think where we're at now um, is a focus on me also, which is um, the section of the movement that's kind of refocusing on illustrating or rather illuminating the stories of people who you know, aren't celebrities and aren't famous actresses. Mm. Those stories are very important because we grabbed onto them and heard them, like, mm. and it was very difficult for those people to speak out being such public figures. But uh, now we're really needing to look at kind of let's take it down a notch here and look at um, how does it how many translate? Ordinary, yeah, yeah, how does this translate to let's say ordinary lives, like lives that aren't celebrated, people who don't have as much power, uh, individually. people working in factories that are women that Precisely. aren't you know able to go to the toilet to change their sanitary napkins. Yes, I mean that's, that's right. me too as well. Isn't that's it? right. That's right. Yeah. It's it's about. Um, calling out abuse, Mm -hmm. it's about human rights um, and it's about uh, stopping this um, tradition of protecting perpetrators if they're powerful enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's always the if, depends Mm -hmm. on who you are. Mm -hmm. But there's been a a group of people, mostly men, who have been mostly very, very wealthy, who have got away with a great deal for a very long time. very recently, Epstein. Mm -hmm. That's right. I'm shocked and horrified as to how recent that was. And it's been an open secret from what we all know now. Mm -hmm. There were a huge number of people who knew about this. And that's, that's what is so shocking and yet not shocking. And it was mm. the same with Weinstein and with Cosby and a few mm. of the other figures that have, um, you know, had their stories illuminated during the, the Me Too rise, if you will. Uh, these are people who are not first-time offenders no. and there were people who knew. And yeah. I guess it's that um, speaking truth to power is very difficult and uh, risky and by doing it together, we're able to get somewhere. And mm. that's also what the book Speaking Out was about for me, was about mm. encouraging people to um, to harness their voice and what they have to say and do it together and show solidarity and um, be present in the conversation because mm. it's an important one. Oh, absolutely. Okay, going back to you and your writing, tell me about when you wrote, first wrote your fiction book. Where did it come from? I mean, when was it that you decided you wanted to be a writer? Well, I know you were writing at age 10. But <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad actually found um, in the attic back in 1999, I think it was, or 1998, he found in the attic um, the uh, black and white doom, which was... <laughs> The title, Doom was cool because I was 10, okay? Um, It was my first little novelette that I'm aware of, like a full story, and it was written by hand, you know, like on full scat paper, and I had little doodles in the margins and stuff like that, and that was, you know, when I was 10 years old. But it took me quite a while to recognize that even though I was a writer myself and that's what I did for my own 
uh, enjoyment and it was like a natural organic thing for me that it should be something I pursue as a career because it's my passion. Mm. It took me a while to recognize that that might even be possible because I thought of authors as sort of these incredible beings on pedestals, untouchable and maybe not human in the same way I was, you know, mm. like not fallible. And, and you admired them so I much. I admired them so much. I felt like I couldn't be like them, you know. Um, but I'm here to tell you, folks, writers are all kinds of people with mm. all kinds of different histories and ideas and abilities. And like it's, you know, we're a very mixed bunch. There's no one type of writer. And that's very freeing to know. Um, so when I wrote Fetish, it was a crime novel. It was set in Australia, like Dead Man Switches, 20 years later. Uh, and I was at the time 23 when I started writing it. And were you here? Were you in Australia? I was in Australia. Yeah. I was living in Sydney at the time. And I was writing the type of book that I was enjoying reading at the time. And I was also writing the type of character I wasn't finding but wanted to read. Mm -hmm. So for me at the time, it was Mac Vanderwall. This woman in her 20s who was underestimated, who was very um, kind of like an action woman of sorts, but she was kind of beautiful and tough and this combination of characteristics that I wasn't seeing at the time. Fast forward 20 years and it's not so radical, but at the time it was actually considered to be pretty unusual. You didn't Gen see these female characters. You did not. I think I went to the fetish launch. Yes. I think I went okay. to the fetish launch. <laughs> we're, we're down to it. Like that's the reality. Yeah. Uh, and that would I, make sense. Do you know what struck me that night was there was a, a female in the group because largely mm. it was male fiction yes. that we were reading at the time. Absolutely. And I remember being really surprised about that and seeing mm. you speak and thinking, wow. I mean, and for whatever reason, I'd never, I'd never thought of reading female crime fiction. I mean, yes. there was the Agatha Christie's of the world and yes. whatever, but in Australia there wasn't. You had no. to be one of the first. It's, it's interesting because it doesn't, it seems so weird to think about it now, mm. but um, I feel like popular culture has caught up a bit mm. in the 20 years that have intervened. Um, and it's still, it still is the odd one out, like we'll still get a, you know, a lot of Clancy movies or mm. a lot of, you know, we'll get yet another Sherlock Holmes and yet another Bond. And those are all great. Mm. But we don't have as many of these, like, recurring, incredible women who are characters that are, you know, in charge of the show. Like, mm. it's about them. They're not a sidekick. They're not a love interest. They're not a victim. It's actually their own um, moment. Uh, we don't have enough or not celebrating enough of those types of books. Do you remember going back to fetish? Do you mm. remember being the only female in the room? You know, in often. terms of, yeah. And often, often in like a really literal sense as yes. well, like doing the research, it would be generally a, a kind of boys club of cops. The policing in Australia has shifted as well in that time. And due to very proactive advocacy within policing, because in the early days, it was like, all the detectives were male. Mm -hmm. When I would go to a crime scene, everyone was male except sometimes the victim. You know, if I went to the morgue, again, it was a, a sort of boys club. And now I'm seeing many more women working in, you know, forensics and pathology, working as detectives. And gosh, what a difference that makes. It's so positive for the community to Absolutely. have more representation. Like imagine a situation where you've had a very horrible experience and someone comes to you who reminds you a bit of the perpetrator. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. not intentionally, but as, as a traumatized Absolutely. woman, you want to be able to see another woman at least in the room for goodness oh, sakes, right? Oh, it's different right? types of empathy. It's, yes. it's a different relationship entirely. Yeah. And just and seeing that it. representation, yeah. that authority includes people from your group uh, is super important. It's mm. a it's a form of representation that's very important. Well, it's like why we read Australian because we yes. want to see ourselves in the book. That's so, right. So you know, when we're reading fiction, I want yes. to see myself in a book. That's right. So yeah. things have shifted. There's still some way to go, and obviously, you can. There's lots of data on the you know the breakdown of mm. protagonists in in stories, whether they're on the screen or in books, and kind of what gets celebrated, what makes the Oscars or a bestseller mm. list. So there's there's work to be done, but I I do feel that things have shifted a little bit, and I'm proud to be just like a tiny um, part of that. Oh yeah, most definitely you have been. Tell me um, your time, like the research and how you got to Quantico. I really mm. want to know about those. Quantico is a hard one to get into. It took oh, me quite a while. Um, and why? So, Well, I had through my Mac Vanderwall crime series, I did a lot of research specific to scenes in her the books with her as the mm. main character. Um, and that involved <laughs> everything from you know, shooting guns with the LAPD. Again, that was a complete boys club at that stage. Mm-hmm. Like I would go on to the shooting range and it was all all men and oh, I would wow. be doing the firearms training simulator and it was all um, male officers behind me judging me as I was out there with the Beretta doing, like going through the moves and doing this mm-hmm. simulation. Um, and that's not so long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Quantico is important because there were scenes set at Quantico, so I had to go there and see it myself. Um, I was also choked unconscious and set on fire for the Mac Vanderwall books for research. Thankfully not at the same time. Yeah. And with a stunt company and with professionals, so I'm still sitting here today able so to speak with you. So you're a method writer. I'm, a meth- <laughs> I'm very much a method writer. Right. Um, with Dead Man Switch, the, the, of course the research has been different because a lot of it is about history it's a, yeah. it's historical research but still i need to go to the places which i have done and the like i'd say 98% of the locations in dead man switch are in Sydney in the Blue Mountains and they exist today. You can go today to those places. Yeah, They're generally well. overlooked. They might not be in great condition anymore. Part of, parts of them are disused or not safe to walk through, but they're still there and the architecture is gorgeous, yeah, like well. gorgeous. I'd love to do, um, you know, this, the Billy Walker tour of Sydney and share and kind of like shine a light again on these places which maybe are overlooked now. Mm. So, yeah, I've done a lot of types of research yeah, and yeah. spent a lot of time with cops and in morgues and done all of that. And so, so you live and breathe it, don't you? I do, and I feel that that helps me in the writing and I just genuinely find it interesting. Like mm. if I wasn't a writer with an excuse to do this research, I'd have to find another way to do it because I find life so fascinating. Mm. And you're busy. You're busy, you know, that you've got your philanthropy that you do and you've got your writing. And recently did I see that you were doing some sewing? Yes. Well, I, uh, I'm the patron of the Australian Sewing Guild, if you can believe it. How did it. that happen? That's a good question. They asked me. I would never have imagined I'm good enough as a sewist to actually uh, have that mantle, but they wanted me um, to help um, promote sewing and mending, which I'm very passionate about, and they saw me kind of doing that in the media, pr- trying to kind of promote vintage and secondhand and, and salvaging and, uh, things and, and fixing them and sewing your own. And they were like, this is what we want. We actually want a new generation of people to be doing this and to learn these skills. So I'm not an amazing sewist, um, but uh, I do love sewing. 
and uh, I find particular pleasure in salvaging old garments. Obviously, from the 1940s is my favourite period. Mm-hmm. I can and see that. As you can see. <laughs> and, you know, there's a few things that give me more pleasure than finding something from the 40s and maybe the lining is all, like, stained and half rotted and you can pull that out and the wool is in beautiful, you know, the crepe wool is still in beautiful condition and you can give it love. Have you got you a can, sewing machine? I do. I have a sewing yeah. machine. Uh, a lot of the mending is hand done as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm always learning. And I think um, that helped set me up to understand Billy Walker and her world more because Make, Do and Mend was a big part of people's lives in the 40s. Yeah. And the events in 1946 where the book happens, during that period they hadn't got rid of all the rationing yet. There's mentions of petrol rationing and other things that are not available yet. So it was a normal thing for people to um, to mend and to make do, and it maybe makes Billy Walker the first detective who solves crimes and darns her own stockings. And I like something about that. I, I like what too. that says. I like it a lot. Tara mm-hmm. Moss, thank you. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.